0: remark upon how eerie it was that Halley's Comet should appear at nearly the same time. Shortly before his passengers were due to board, Kendall bought a copy of the Continental edition of London's Daily Mail, an English-language newspaper distributed in Europe. The edition was full of fresh detail about the North London cellar murder and the escalating search for two suspects, a doctor and his lover. Back in London... The ship had been visited by two officers from Scotland Yard's Thames Division, patrolling the wharves in hopes of thwarting the couple's escape. Everyone loved a mystery. Kendall knew at once that this would be the mainstay of conversation throughout the voyage, not aircraft or dead kings or haunted country houses, but murder at its most loathsome. The question at the fore, where were the fugitive lovers now? The Montrose eased from the wharf amid the usual squall of white handkerchiefs and began making its way down the River Skelt toward the North Sea. Stewards helped passengers find the ship's library and its dining room and lounges known as saloons. Despite the modest proportions of the Montrose, its second-class travelers felt as pampered as they would have felt on the Lusitania. The stewards and stewardesses brought blankets and books to passengers and took orders for tea, Belgian cocoa, and scotch, and carried pads and envelopes upon which passengers could write messages for transmission via the Marconi room. Kendall made it a point to stroll the deck several times a day looking for untidy uniforms, tarnished fittings, and other problems, and trying always to greet passengers by name, a good memory being another attribute necessary for the captain of a liner. Three hours into the voyage, Kendall saw two of his passengers lingering by a lifeboat, He knew them to be the Robinsons, father and son, returning to America. Kendall walked toward them, then stopped. They were holding hands, he saw, but not in the manner one might expect of father and son, if indeed one could ever expect a boy on the verge of manhood to hold hands with his father. The boy squeezed the man's hand with an intensity that suggested a deeper intimacy. It struck Kendall as strange and unnatural. He paused a moment then continued walking until he came abreast of the two. He stopped and wished them a pleasant morning. As he did so, he took careful note of their appearance. He smiled, wished them a fine voyage, and moved on. He said nothing about the passengers to his officers or crew, but as a precaution ordered the stewards to gather up every newspaper on the ship and lock them away. He kept a revolver in his cabin for the worst kinds of emergencies. Now he placed it in his pocket. I did not do anything further that day or take any steps, because I wanted before raising an alarm to make sure I was making no mistake. Within twenty-four hours, Captain Kendall would discover that his ship had become the most famous vessel afloat, and that he himself had become the subject of breakfast conversation from Broadway in New York to Piccadilly in London. He had stepped into the intersection of two wildly disparate stories— whose collision on his ship in this time, the end of the Edwardian era, would exert influence on the world for the century to come. In the ardently held view of one camp, the story had its rightful beginning on the night of June 4, 1894, at 21 Albemarle Street, London, the address of the Royal Institution. Though one of Britain's most august scientific bodies, it occupied a building of modest proportion, only three floors. The false columns affixed to its façade were an afterthought, meant to impart a little grandeur. It housed a lecture hall, a laboratory, living quarters, and a bar, where members could gather to discuss the latest scientific advances. Inside the hall, a physicist of great renown readied himself to deliver the evening's presentation— he hoped to startle his audience, certainly, but otherwise he had no inkling that this lecture would prove the most important of his life and a source of conflict for decades to come. His name was Oliver Lodge, and really the outcome was his own fault, another manifestation of what even he acknowledged to be a fundamental flaw in how he approached his work. In the moments remaining before his talk, he made one last check of an array of electrical apparatus. Positioned on a demonstration table, some of it familiar, most unlike anything seen before in this hall. Lodge was a professor of physics at the new University College of Liverpool, where his laboratory was housed in a space that once had been the padded cell of a lunatic asylum. He had come of age during a time when scientists began to coax from the mists a host of previously invisible phenomena, particularly in the realm of electricity and magnetism. The Royal Institution became for Lodge a sort of sacred place, he wrote, where pure science was enthroned to be worshipped for its own sake. He believed the finest science was theoretical science, and he scorned what he and other like-minded scientists called practitioners, the new heathens, inventors and engineers and tinkerers, who eschewed theoretical research for blind experimentation and whose motive was commercial gain. As his career advanced, Lodge, too, was asked to deliver the institution's lectures, the Friday evening discourses, and he reveled in the opportunity to put nature's secrets on display. When a scientific breakthrough occurred, Lodge tried to be first to bring it to public notice, a pattern he had begun as early as 1877 when he acquired one of the first phonographs and brought it to England for a public demonstration, but his infatuation with the new had a corollary effect a vulnerability to distraction. He exhibited a lofty dilettantism that late in life he acknowledged had been a fatal flaw. As it is, he wrote, I have taken an interest in many subjects and spread myself over a considerable range, a procedure which, I suppose, has been good for my education, though not so prolific of results. To the dismay of peers, one of his greatest distractions was the world of the supernatural. He was a member of the Society for Psychical Research, SPR, established in 1882 by a group of level-headed souls, mostly scientists and philosophers, to bring scientific scrutiny to ghosts, seances, telepathy, and other paranormal events. The Society's constitution stated that membership did not imply belief in physical forces other than those recognized by physical science. That the SPR had a committee on haunted houses deterred no one. Its membership expanded quickly to include 60 university dons and some of the brightest lights of the era, among them John Ruskin, H.G. Wells, William E. Gladstone, Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, and the Reverend C.L. Dodgson, with the equally prominent pen name Lewis Carroll. The roster also listed William James, a pioneer in psychology, who by the summer of 1894 had been named the Society's president. It was Lodge's inquisitiveness, not a belief in ghosts, that first drove him to become a member of the SPR. The occult was for him just one more invisible realm worthy of exploration, the outermost province of the emerging science of psychology. The unveiling during Lodge's life of so many hitherto unimagined physical phenomena, among them Heinrich Hertz's discovery of electromagnetic waves, suggested to him that the world of the mind must harbor secrets of its own. The fact that waves could travel through the ether seemed to confirm the existence of another plane of reality. If one could send electromagnetic waves through the ether, was it such an outrageous next step to suppose that the spiritual essence of human beings, an electromagnetic soul, might also exist within the ether, and thus explain the hauntings and spirit wrappings that had become such a fixture of common legend? reports of ghosts inhabiting country houses, poltergeists rattling abbeys, spirits knocking on tables during seances, all these in the eyes of Lodge and fellow members of the society seemed as worthy of dispassionate analysis as the invisible travels of an electromagnetic wave. Within a few years of his joining the SPR, however, events challenged Lodge's ability to maintain his scientific remove. In Boston... William James began hearing from his own family about a certain Mrs. Piper, Lenore Piper, a medium who was gaining notoriety for possessing strange powers. Intending to expose her as a fraud, James arranged a sitting and found himself enthralled. He suggested that the society invite Mrs. Piper to England for a series of experiments. She and her two daughters sailed to Liverpool in November 1889 and then traveled to Cambridge where a sequence of sittings took place under the close observation of S.P.R. members. Lodge arranged a sitting of his own and suddenly found himself listening to his dead Aunt Anne, a beloved woman of lively intellect who had abetted his drive to become a scientist against the wishes of his father. She once had told Lodge that after her death she would come back to visit if she could, and now in a voice he remembered, she reminded him of that promise. This he wrote, was an unusual thing to happen. To Lodge, the encounter seemed proof that some part of the human mind persisted even after death. It left him, he wrote, thoroughly convinced...